welcome to True to the Bible Podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us for our next lesson in our series on the heart of Philippians with Adam Barnes. In this lesson called Misplaced Confidence Part 2, Adam teaches us about Paul when he compares the worthlessness of his past accolades and attempts to gain righteousness with the priceless value of intimately knowing Jesus Christ. Application is easy to understand as we can draw closer to Jesus Christ. Well, thanks again for joining us. We hope that you enjoy this lesson. Okay, so today we're going to do Misplaced Confidence Part 2. So, just a little backstory, or let's get the quick review. What was the misplaced confidence referring to? Well, we, last week we saw that Paul was writing the Philippians, and he said, Rejoice in the Lord, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, it's a safeguard for you. He says, finally, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. And he was saying that they put their confidence, what, what was he saying with those Judaizers, those dogs, those evil workers, what was he saying, where were they putting their confidence? Okay, so they were Jewish. Were they believers? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they were. But what were, where were they placing their confidence? Where were they placing their faith? In the law. In the law. What specifically? Circumcision In circumcision. They were, yeah, they, they were saying that, look, you still have to adhere to the law. You still have to do, even though you've believed in Jesus, in order to get righteousness, you still have to adhere to the things of the law. And Paul says, beware of those guys. Beware of the dogs. They're filthy. Beware of the evil workers. Because they're wanting to attach something to the gospel message, to the good news. Beware of the false circumcision because they're doing it in the flesh, not a spiritual circumcision. And he says, we're the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so today we're going to continue. We did a lot, just to be honest with you, we did a lot of the groundwork for this lesson last week because it's, you had to get that backstory. You have to know why circumcision was important to the Jews, why it made sense for the Jews in Philippi to say, yeah, I mean, I see what they're saying. And Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't follow that. Here's why. And today, like I said, we laid the groundwork a lot last week for what we're going to talk about today, but he gets pretty deep pretty quick. And so we're going to tackle probably the most difficult verse again. We've seen some difficult verses. We saw chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, we saw some difficult verses in chapter 2. But in terms of theology and how we put it together and make sense of it, we're going to tackle probably the most difficult verse in Philippians today. So let's look at the point, and then we'll get into it. <clears throat> really, the point's a lot the same as last week. We can't do anything to obtain a righteous standing before God. And I, this is not tied, this is tied poorly, but any achievement, motive, or effort that we look to for our righteousness is a waste. Paul, the King James, he actually says it, it's dumb. Anything that we do is worthless. It's a waste. It's rubbish from God's perspective. The first step towards victory in our lives as Christians is to grasp our identity in Jesus Christ. You hear people talk a lot today about identity, which is ironic because identity is a huge deal in the Bible. And the first step for us to have victory in the Christian life is to know who we are in Christ. What does it mean that we're, new, we're a new creation? What old things have passed? What new things have come? And what are we supposed to do with them? That's all part of who you are, who I am as a Christian. And once we realize the worthlessness of our fleshly, worldly, and prideful efforts and embrace our union with Jesus Christ, then and only then do we begin to look like Him. There's good news, and that's that someday believers won't struggle with our fleshly bodies. We won't struggle with the fallen world system or with our pride. And in that day, we'll be complete, we'll be mature, we'll be perfect. Uh, but until then, we can still strive for maturity and to progress in our conformity to Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is. It's being continually conformed, being set apart, and uh, being conformed to the image of Christ. And though it's ultimately futile because we can't reach that in, this, in these bodies, Jesus is going to reward those who endure and persevere through the hardships that come from the striving. That's a promise in Scripture. For this reason, we press on towards the goal of conforming to His image. So we're going to see uh, really a value proposition. You heard me say last week that He uses value language. 
meaning that some stuff is worthless, some stuff is valuable. Today we're going to see why. We're going to get really specific in the value proposition that's offered by Jesus. And we're going to talk about authentic righteousness because we've already seen a counterfeit righteousness or an attempt at counterfeit righteousness brought on by these Judaizers. And then we're going to talk about our union and identification with Jesus, which is really the key. And we know that being bat- we're, pla- we're baptized by the Holy Spirit, placed in union with Christ. That's our identification with Jesus. We're going to go to Romans 6 today to make the point to where he says, you've died with Christ so that you can rise again to a new life. And now you have the ability to walk in the newness of life. And that's going to be a key to what we see today. And that one's the onward and upward. He says, I press on towards the goal of the upward call. So let's look at it. We'll start here with the goals. The first thing is to complete our assessment of the Judaizers' misplaced confidence. We've already talked a little bit about it. We want to know the only valuable object in which to place our confidence. You hear us say all the time in this church, your faith has to have an object. What is the object of your faith? Because it's the same thing that brings about your righteousness. Three, we want to learn how a person can obtain that righteousness. The next, we want to understand our identity in Christ. And then finally, we want to be encouraged to persevere in our lives as Christians. So let's look at the scripture. In verse 8, so he's just said, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So he's already started out by saying, all those things that I was, I was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, nation of Israel, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuted the church, but all those things I count as lost. Now he's going to emphasize that. He's actually going to double down and say, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. That's waste. That's refuse. Dung, however you want to say it. So that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that's derived from the law, like the Judaizers, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's the difficult verse that we're going to tackle here in a minute. It says, not that I've already obtained it, not that I've already become perfect or mature, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That's classic Paul. He's saying something important, but he says it in a really weird way that doesn't translate well. Then in verse 13, he says, Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So let's look at the value proposition. We mentioned that last week that he uses this value language. And really, when you read it, I want you to think of it as like you're in a mercantile or in a bazaar. You ever been to like another country when you go to a place and they have the tourist spots and you negotiate with the person and you're really trying to find a value. They're trying to get the most out of you and you're trying to pay the least. It's that type of idea. We ended, we ended last week with Paul saying that all the accolades that he had obtained and viewed as important before Jesus, they were actually, they're worthless. They're of no value. Relative. Relative. I, I think he's talking relative. I'm not saying thinking he's saying all that stuff is worthless, but in view of the righteousness, even more extraordinary value of knowing Christ, compared to that, they're, they're nothing. So it, it is in the context of righteousness, it is relative. Because can you get it? Can can he get righteousness because he was circumcised the eighth day, or because he was of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin? The context, the flow, is that he's talking about righteousness, and that's his point. And that in view of trying to obtain your righteousness, like these Judaizers were saying that they could do, he's saying you guys are putting your, you've misplaced your confidence. You're putting it in something that doesn't make any sense has no value from God's perspective. And so that's the context that he's talking about. And so it is important that I'm clear, so I appreciate you saying that. Well, I'm just causing trouble. No, no, no. <laughs> it, it is important. Because let me ask you this, to Kevin's point, are our works in the Christian life valuable? Yeah. Yes. Yes, they are. They're not just valuable for us at the judgment seat of Christ. They're also valuable to the people that they affect. So it's, I'm not saying that all good works 
are worthless. That's not what I mean. To be clear, when we talk about getting God's righteousness, where does that come from? It comes by faith in Christ only. That's the whole point of why he calls them dogs. It's why they're evil workers. It's why he calls them the false circumcision. It's not a true message because they're saying they can obtain their righteousness by their works. He's saying, no, 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 that's worthless. That's what we're going to see here in just a second. So it's important because it wasn't just he that valued that type of stuff because remember those Judaizers thought that righteousness came through the law and all the things that they could attain through their works. He's making the point that by their own standards, by what they believe, how they think that they could get righteousness, he says, I'm actually more righteous than you based on your standards. I'm circumcised the eighth day. I'm with the nation of Israel. I'm with the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness, which is found in the law, you can't hold anything against me. I'm found blameless. But whatever those things were gained to me then, I count them but loss. He's saying their confidence was misplaced because it missed the point of Jesus' death and resurrection. So they they missed, were more detriment than, than asset. I think he's saying that too. Yeah, 100%. He is because of the, of the harm that they're doing. Right. Yeah, I agree. So the Judaizers mistakenly believed that their works, which specifically we're talking about circumcision, maybe the Sabbath, some of the other law things, they were of the highest value, that they were valuable because they could attain God's righteousness through them. But Paul turns their value system on its head by saying that the qualities that make them righteousness are actually garbage in God's eyes. They're worthless. So let's see it. Verse 8, he says, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. So like I mentioned, he increases the emphasis of his past actions being worthless from a righteousness standpoint by saying that all things are loss. All things are loss based on the knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. So that first blank is loss. And he uses value language here to help paint a picture that it's, it's difficult to see in English. Think of a business trade or a bazaar, like I mentioned, or a mercantile where people are negotiating and they're considering the value of something. And here the word loss refers to taking a loss it refers to taking a loss in a bad business deal. So think of it that they were investing in their works. They were investing in circumcision. They were investing in the law. There's no return in that. If that's what they think that they're going to get eternal life from, or that's what they're going to get salvation from, that's a bad business deal. It's lost because they've put their investment into something that's not going to have a return on investment. Everything that we do outside of the context of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, in that sense, for our righteousness, is worthless. So the word for loss here carries the idea of taking a loss in a bad business deal. Anything that we do outside of that context of Jesus Christ and his kingdom isn't worth anything for righteousness. So before Paul's conversion, hadn't he tried to gain righteousness the same way? Yeah, he was a Pharisee. He did the same thing that they were doing. He was trying to do it through his zeal and through his efforts. He was going around wrangling Christians, killing Christians, because he thought that that's what he was supposed to do to attain righteousness. His entire life's effort was worthless from the righteousness perspective. When he came to the knowledge of the truth pertaining to who Jesus is, all that he had previously striven for, or strove for, I don't know if striven is a word, it became worthless in his mind. So then he continues the value language here by saying that he counted them but rubbish so that he could gain Christ. This is a contrast. He's using, he's saying that that, was their, that value was lost, but now he's going to talk about gaining Christ. Gaining Christ. He says that he counted them but rubbish so that he may gain Christ. And the word for rubbish here carries the idea of loss or worthlessness. It could literally mean trash, garbage, dumb. It's worthless. It has no value from a righteousness standpoint. And the word for gain carries the idea of profiting or getting gain. 
And if you think about it that way, think about the words getting gain. It's not just gain, it's getting something. It's a return on investment. It's a good business deal. Something that you gain from. And he isn't saying that someone has to abandon everything about their identity as a requirement for eternal life salvation. That's not what he's saying here, because that's legalism. But he's using the value descriptions of loss and profit to compare the worthlessness of our accolades for righteousness with the value of a life in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better deal in every form and fashion. And really, it's the only deal that provides genuine, lasting gain, as we're going to see here. Verse 9, in authentic, we're going to, we got called this an authentic righteousness. He says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is derived from the law, because that's what those Judaizers were saying. Look what I did. I got circumcised. I keep the Sabbath. I make the sacrifices. They're doing something through the means of the law to achieve righteousness. And he says, I don't want to be found in him having a righteousness of my own that's derived from the law, but I want to be found in him by that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul not only desires to gain profit from the knowledge of Christ, but he also wants to take on his righteousness. That's a big deal. It's a big deal to take on God's righteousness. Because let me ask you something. Could you stand before God eternally and have a relationship with Him if you were unrighteous? You can't. He wouldn't be a just God if He allowed it. Because before we believe, we stand in opposition to Him condemned. Before we believe, we don't even have the ability to understand uh, where we're at. And natural man doesn't accept the things of the spiritual God for their foolishness to me. When we were in our fallen state, we stood in opposition to God. And we are destined for hell. We're destined to be condemned. But he gives us Christ's righteousness because of what Jesus did, his work. He lived a perfect life. He gave it up on the cross. He rose again three days later. And he offers us eternal life. It's because of what he did that we get his righteousness. And that's, that's the next one. A person only gains righteousness of, of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Open up your Bibles to Romans 3. We actually read this last week. We talked about it. But let's see it together. Paul's going to talk about the law. And we can make application as Gentiles just through general works or stuff that we do to attain righteousness. Romans 3, chapter 19, or chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? What's the law for? So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Why does the law close everybody's mouth? Nobody can keep it. Only one person can keep it. He was born under the law. He kept the law perfectly. So nobody can do what? Nobody can boast. They can't glory in what they did. Every mouth is closed because they can't keep the law. And all the world, therefore, because they can't keep the law, they all become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law just comes the knowledge of sin. How does the law, how does through the law come the knowledge of sin? Yeah. How would we know what sin was if if there was nothing to tell us what we could or couldn't do? But there was a law. God knew we couldn't keep it. He gave it to us to show us that we couldn't keep it. And look what he says in 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Not through the law, apart from the law, 
righteousness has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for those who believe. For there's no distinction. What's that distinction between? Jew and Gentile. Paul is dealing with these Jewish people who are coming in and say, righteousness, God's righteousness, comes through the law. You have to adhere to the law of Moses. Remember we went back to Acts and we saw that even some of the Jewish Pharisees were saying, yeah, yeah, it's necessary to obey the law. It's necessary to get circumcised and obey the law. Paul says here, apart from the law, God's righteousness has now been manifested, and not just for the Jews, but for us, for the Gentiles. That's a big deal. So for us, we were never under the law. Remember how verse 19 said, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed. That was never us. But guess what? We did it. We created our own works. Without the law, religion still found a way to make works necessary for salvation. We didn't ever, we were never under it. And then we came back and said that now you have to do all these things to get saved, to prove you're saved, to stay saved. We did the exact we went away from the exact freedom that God gave to us. That's crazy talk. That's why it's a disingenuous fake unauthentic righteousness because there's nothing that you can do there's nothing that you can do to obtain God's righteousness from that standpoint it's garbage stop that's what we're going to see here in a minute he says stop start trying to do all this stuff that you think that you can get righteousness from because you can't do it it's worthless you're wasting your time righteousness comes by faith in Christ period The Judaizers who were preaching that obedience to the law was necessary for salvation thought that they would be found righteous by the Messiah because of their rituals and because of their tradition keeping. If they never repented, meaning if they never changed their mind, when they stand before God, nothing will justify them if they say that their righteousness comes because of something they did. The author of Hebrews has a lot to say about this, by the way. He says, don't disregard what Jesus Christ did. Stop going back and giving sacrifices. What was the verse that you guys memorized last week? What does it say? I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteous came through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Why did he come? If it's something that you could do, if it was because of some ritual you could keep, why did he come and be sin on your behalf? It seems like he didn't know what he was doing, or like he was wasting his time if it was something that we could achieve through our own merit. The Second Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could become the perfect righteousness of God through him. So the next one, let's talk about it. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. This is a big deal. Remember we started out last week talking about clarity? Were the Judaizers, were the Judaizers taking a message? Were they taking a message out to the world? They were. They were taking a message out. Did the message involve Jesus? It did. Was it a clear message? was not a clear message. Or it was clearly wrong. You might say it that way. But when we say that Jesus is the object of our faith, how does somebody get eternal life? Faith in Jesus. Okay, so let's talk about that because you guys need to talk about that when you go out into the world. You guys just said faith in Jesus gives me eternal life. For eternal life. Well, let's talk about it. What does it mean? What do you mean by that? If somebody were to say, what do you mean faith in Jesus? Trust. So, tr- so what am I trusting? 
So I'm trusting my faith is in Jesus' death and resurrection. Trusting that he's able and willing to do what he promised he'd do. So, uh, willing and able, yeah, I think that's a part of it, yeah. I'm not being legalistic. We're going to be clear because clarity matters, as we see here in Philippians. When you tell somebody about Jesus, or you ask somebody, why would you why do you have eternal life? And they say, Faith. What do you say? Faith in what? What's your object? Yeah, what's the object? So you say faith in what? And they say Jesus or God. What if they say God? Which God? What do you mean by that? No one gives the Father except for me. So John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Muslims would say faith in God. Right? So let's get specific. What do you mean by God? Did God come and die? Did God the Father come and die? His son. Okay, so his son. So faith in Jesus. So I can have faith in Jesus that what? That he died and rose again and I have eternal life? That he's our Savior. Bingo. That he offers us eternal life. will give it to us. So there's a lot of things that if I go on campus and I ask Christians, how do you have eternal life? Faith? Faith or believing, believing in what? In God. Who's God? What do you mean by that? And I'm not being coy. They can't answer the question, which is the reason it's important for us who are going out and taking this message to people to be as clear as we can. God does save, but He does it through His Son. That's why He sent Him. That's the exact reason. So if I believe that Jesus died and rose again, do I have eternal life? Because my object is my object. Yes, is my object the, it is the, the the object of my faith his death and resurrection. It's not simply his death and resurrection. There are people who are atheists, who are historians, that go back and look and say something happened because the world changed at this moment. Something happened. There had to be something. Jesus probably died and rose again. There's people who are atheists who believe that. Do they have eternal life? It's not the fact that he died and rose again. It's because he died and rose again that he's able to offer us eternal life. It's because we need a Savior, and he's that person. So it's important that when you talk about the object of your faith with gentleness and reverence, when you're talking to people, you talk to them about the object of our faith. Jesus offers us eternal life because he's the only one qualified to offer it. He did what we couldn't do. He lived a perfect life, gave that life up on the cross, rose again, and now we are offered eternal life through him because he did what we couldn't. He was our substitute. He took on our sin, eliminated that, then he eliminated the symptom of sin, which is death. He dealt with both of them for us. Because he did that, we can have eternal life through him. We get his righteousness. It's nothing we can do. This is the foundation. This is the reason we say there's nothing we can do. Because if we are, we're saying, I'm nullifying what Jesus did. And I'm not going to nullify the grace of God because if righteousness comes through my works, then Jesus died needlessly. This is the foundation. The object of our faith is Jesus. We get his righteousness because he did the work. I know I'm beating a dead horse to a bunch of people who know this information, but it's important that we're clear. Clarity matters because these Judaizers weren't clear. They were evil workers because their message was wrong, and it was detrimental. And people, most people today aren't clear. That's exactly right. You can't get somebody to clearly explain what salvation means and how you get it 
or if they do, they tell you the wrong answer. That's exactly right. I, I tell this story all the time. I had a group of, I won't say the, the specific fraternity, but I had a group of freshmen from a fraternity on campus that were meeting with me in the union. In the first week, there was probably 12 or 14 of them. And I said, I'm going to ask you a question on week one, and we'll revisit it in week 14. I'm going to ask you, how do you know that you have eternal life? You don't have to share it with anybody, just share it with me. Write down on a piece of paper what you have to do to have eternal life. I'm not exaggerating. I got however many people were in that room, I got that many different answers. You're exactly right. People either don't know it or they're going to tell you something wrong because we're not clear. It's not that we're legalistic. It's not that we feel like we have a market on truth. We don't. There are other people out there who believe that eternal life comes by faith in Christ. But they may not present it clearly. And if the message isn't clear when it's given, it's not received clearly, and it's not passed on clearly. That's why we do it. So what's the object of our faith? Jesus. Why? Because he died, he, yeah, because he's the only one qualified to offer us eternal life. He's the only one that can do it. That's it. So when somebody asks you why you have eternal life or how you can be saved, you can say, because I put my faith in Jesus. There's nothing that I can do. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, and he was the only one that could fulfill what I couldn't. He was my substitute. Because of that, I put my faith and trust in him. Okay. Only in Him can we find authentic righteousness. Authentic righteousness. There's a lot of different ways the world says that you can be righteous. Even, in, even as early as this was, what is this, probably 30 years after Jesus died? 25 years after Jesus died, people are always already coming behind and saying, yeah, Jesus is part of it, but you still have to get circumcised. You still have to adhere to the law. And that's not true. That's not an authentic message. Alright, so next let's get to the difficult part. We're going to talk about our union and our identification with Jesus. This is a big part. So Paul's going to shift gears now because he's talked about how to get righteousness. Now he's going to talk about what to do with it. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What's that mean? And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So we see here right off the bat, he said that I may know him. This is a desire for an intimate and personal knowledge of Jesus. Not just to understand what he said and did, but to feel what he felt and to live a life worthy of the one he lived. That's an important thing for us. When you think about Jesus, what do you think about? Is he just this unattainable, unrelatable figure? Because he's not. He was a man. He was a person just like you're a person. He was tempted the same way you're tempted. He was hungry the same way you're hungry. He was hot and cold the same way you're hot and cold. He was a person. He's relatable. Paul says, I want to relate with you. I want to know the power of your resurrection. I want to take part. I want to participate in the fellowship of your sufferings. Being conformed to his death that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So when Paul speaks about the power of Jesus' resurrection, he is literally speaking about the power of God and specifically the Holy Spirit. I need you to understand that. Because that, remember how we said the first step in gaining victory in your Christian life is understanding this? This is exactly what we're talking about. The first step in understanding that you're having victory in your Christian life is understanding your identity. This is part of your identity. Because you have the same power that Jesus was resurrected by. You have that power in you. It's crazy to think about. Paul says, I want to know that intimately. I need to live that resurrection life out. It's this power that enables us to live out God's will for us to stop sinning. And I don't know why I wrote it twice there, but it's that important. <laughs> the power of Jesus' resurrection enables us to live a life pleasing to God. 
the power of Jesus' resurrection enables us to live a life pleasing to God. That's a valuable life, by the way, an eternally valuable life, because you're going to be rewarded for what you do in His power, which is crazy. Is that grace? He gives you eternal life. He gives you a spiritual gift to serve by. He gives you the power to use it. He gives you the opportunities to use it. And then if you do, He gives you rewards for using it. That's grace. That's a valuable life. You say, Adam, I don't see that here. How can you say that the power of His resurrection is the power to please God? This is a difficult passage. If you go, you can go to a ton of different <coughs> conservative writers, preachers, whoever. You're going to hear a lot of different answers for how to handle this. I was telling Kevin before, I'm not just saying this because he's our pastor. I'm saying it because he's right. J.B. handles this the best of anybody that I've read. I can literally give you paperwork that will confuse you if you read it. It makes no sense. It's circular language. It's confusing. It's not clear. When we don't know what to do with Scripture, let Scripture interpret Scripture. And J.B.'s right. He goes, to, he goes to Romans 6. Let's read it. By the way, this is the most important passage on the Christian life in Scripture. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, is that water baptism? It's not. That's baptism of the Holy Spirit. Who does that? Holy Spirit does it. When? The moment, the moment you believe. You're placed in union with Christ. That's Ephesians 1. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death too? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. Look at this. Think about this in terms of the power of the resurrection. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likenesses of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He's saying, look, if we died with him, we're also going to rise with him. That's part of our union with him. That's part of us being in uh, identif identifying with him, knowing this, what? That our old self was crucified with him. Why? In order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Because he who has died is free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. He's already been resurrected. He's conquered death. And because he did it, and we identify and we're in union with him, it's already happened for us. That is the power of the resurrection. And we have the ability to live that way. And he tells us to live that way anyway. He says, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, you consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Not that you are. You have been freed. You're still going to sin. But consider yourself. This is the knowledge part. Know it. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So to come full circle, we went here to show us that Jesus's, the power of Jesus' resurrection enables us to live a life pleasing to God. You can't do that in your own power. You can't do that out of fellowship when you're not in union with Christ. Do you ever lose your relationship with Christ? Can you lose your eternal life salvation? Can you lose your fellowship? You can. You can get out of, out of union. That's what he's talking about here. When you, because the chains or the bonds of the flesh have been broken, you're no longer a slave to sin. Those chains don't hold you. You don't have to sin. But when you decide to make that a part of your life and you say, I'm going to do what I want apart from what God wants from me, you put yourself back under the bondage of the flesh and you break fellowship with God. Now, can we get back into fellowship? How do we get back into fellowship? Confession. And confession is just telling on yourself. 
That's all it is. It's saying what you want is right and what I did is wrong. What you say is good, what I did is bad. That's humbling yourself back under him. That's putting yourself back under him when you had said what I want is as important for me as what you want or maybe even more important. When you confess, all you're doing is humbling yourself and putting yourself back under him. That's how you go back into fellowship. That's how you get your union back to good. It's not that you don't have eternal life. You're just not going to be able to live a life pleasing to God. That is the resurrection power. Because of what he did, because the chains of the flesh are broken, sin is no longer master of you, death is no longer master over you, the resurrection power is you have the ability now to stop sinning. You have the ability to live a life pleasing to him. Next, Paul mentions participating in Jesus' sufferings, that he would know the fellowship of Jesus' suffering. Paul wanted to participate in Jesus' suffering because it's a blessing. It is. It's a blessing to suffer for and with Jesus Christ. There's lots of scripture. I put some of them here, but you can go find a lot more than what I've written here. If you suffer for the sake of Christ, you're doing it right. I don't just mean persecution. Um, it's In a sense, it's suffering not to do what you want. It's a suffering to give up your time. It's a suffering to give up your energy. It's, a suff- it's suffering to give up what you could be doing in the flesh, or even not even in the flesh. Just doing something that's worthless from a righteousness standpoint. That, that can be suffering. And I really think that's what he has in mind here. But that's a blessing. Because if you're suffering, you're doing it right. If you're being persecuted, you're doing it even more right. Paul says that all these things will lead him to being resurrected out from those who are dead. You don't see it in this language, but when he says that I may obtain to the resurrection of the dead, that's what it actually says, that he's being resurrected out from those who are dead. That is what we just talked about in Romans 6. People who are spiritually dead, meaning that they haven't put their faith in Christ, they are unable to to do anything righteous. They're unable to do anything good. To obtain to that resurrection life is more, it's more than just putting your faith in Jesus because you can still put yourself back under the bondage of the flesh. This is utilizing the power that he's given you to live a life that's pleasing to God. And that's what Paul says, I want to do these things so that I can obtain to that. I want to be progressively and continually set apart or made holy or sanctified. That's exactly what he's saying. I want to obtain to that. And we know that that's what he's saying because look what he says next. Not that I've already obtained it. Can you obtain complete sanctification in this life? You, You either can't or you're better than Paul which is pretty difficult. I mean, there's a lot of people in Scripture who are probably better than him, but it's pretty difficult for us. So your sanctification, your being set apart more and more conformed to the image of Christ, that's something that's progressive. and something that we work on all through our life. And Paul says here, not that I've already obtained it, or not that I've already become mature or perfect, but one thing I do is forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal. So as evidenced by this verse, Paul wants to make sure everyone knows that this will be something that we will always be progressing towards. We can't be perfect. And that word has the idea of completely mature or sinless in this life. We can't be perfect in this life. That doesn't matter. Paul says that he still strives. He still presses on towards the goal. He still does it. We want to strive to live a resurrected life apart from our former manner of living when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. That's resurrected out from those who are dead. In Ephesians 2, he said, you get, we were all formerly dead in our trespasses and sins. We all used to walk that way according to the prince of power of the air and the sons that are now working, or the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. That was us. We all used to live in the lust of our flesh indulging in the desires of the mind and the flesh. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich 
in love and mercy. Sent Jesus to do what he did. And when we put our faith in him, we get his righteousness. We get the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. And we're able to walk in the newness of life. And so the question is then, how do we do it? Maybe the better question is, who's the burden of responsibility on? It's us. It's, it's on us. We have the ability. Chains of the flesh are broken. They're gone. They're played our sins on Christ. We've conquered death. We're united in his death and resurrection. Now, if we just do our part in participation with what he's done, we can live the resurrected life right now. We can. Paul wants us to strive towards complete conformity to Jesus Christ because that's why he saved us. Isn't that what he says in Ephesians 2.10? We're his workmanship created beforehand for what? Good works. Good Good deeds. In Titus 2, he says that God purified us for his own possession, a people that would be zealous for good deeds. Not for our eternal life. We can't do anything to get that. But he did what he did because he wants to save us. Romans 8, 29 says that those whom he foreknew, or those he predestined, he for, or foreknew he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. If you've put your faith in Jesus, that's you. What he wants for all believers is for us to be conformed to Christ's image. But not all believers do that. Later on, a few verses after Romans 8, 29, he says that those whom he justified, he glorified, not sanctified. He skips sanctification because not everybody who puts their faith in Jesus lives out the resurrected life. They still have, they might have a, you know, they're still on the scale. If you're justified, you get all the stuff. Then you're sanctified. Yeah, if this is your sanctification spectrum, everybody's here. Right? But when Paul says that, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he, or those who he predestined, he, or foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son. He goes, those who he justified, he's definitely going to glorify. Because he does those two things. These were, this was dependent on us. So where are you going to be? I would say that most of the Christians today are somewhere between here and here. Hmm. Including me. Definitely the first 30 years of my life. Like like the Judaism. Forgetting what is past. We're getting to that, Heather! We're getting to that! <laughs> Trust me, nobody finds more comfort in that verse than I do. I'm not joking. I don't sure I remember that. We're getting there. We're going onward and upward. We're going this way. <laughs> Before we get there, though, the la- that last blank in this section is God's plan of salvation involves the growth and maturation of those who believe. That's the point that we were getting to. He wants us. He wants us to be conformed to his image. He would love for us to die right here, right before we look like Jesus. And then, boom, there's not a lot of growth to go. There we are. You ever thought about that in terms of the kingdom? Be careful when you start getting really, really mature. (laughs) (laughs) Or worse, people. But think about this in the kingdom. Is he going to, who's going to get the better reward? This guy or this guy? Don't you think it's this guy? Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's some work for these guys to do in the kingdom. I don't know. But we do know that he's going to reward those who are faithful, those who endure, those who are persecuted. They're going to have a better reward. There's a sense that those who are persecuted, even though they may not be that far along the scale, they get a boost toward the front of the line. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? That'd be gracious. Well, I think that's what he says. He says, you know, in, in your Romans, what it was it, the 8 to 17 verses, you know, we're heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ, Christ if, if we, we also suffer with him. I think 
those who are do suffer or are persecuted, regardless of where they may stand on that spectrum, they they've got a special yeah. place and reward coming to them because of that. Okay, yeah, I thought you were saying something else before that, but you're exactly right. And I would also not argue, but to add or develop that thought, I think the type of people who are going to appropriately suffer are probably already a little bit further along this. I think, yeah, most of them are, but I think there's a time coming when people may not be that far along and they're going to suffer regardless. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. There's people who die or, you know, who may not have lived that big of a life but died for Christ. How many people has the thief on the cross been an example to you? I know a guy who was saved on his deathbed because of that story. That guy just saved him. All that guy did was saw Jesus suffering, saw how he was acting and interacting as he was hanging on the cross dying, and he believed in him right there. And he, he asked Jesus, I want, I want to be with you. And because of that guy, how many people have said, man, if that guy's in, I can get in? It's a pretty good testimony. That guy's pyramid scheme is still working. <laughs> all right onward and upward he says brethren I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus Paul reiterates that he hasn't attained complete sanctification here I haven't attained it yet or maturity but he emphasizes that he has one sole focus. He's focused on one thing, pressing on towards the goal of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. I found this great note. Note Paul's progressive reaching out towards his goal in this chapter. In verse 8, that I may gain Christ. That's a value. That I may know Christ. That's an intimate knowledge of who he is, to feel what he feel, feel what he felt, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's the resurrected life. That's the sanctified life. That's the set-apart life. And then here in verse 12, we're going to talk about it in a second, that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That's the good works. Christ did the work to purify for himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good deeds. He laid hold of us so that we could go do the same thing for other people. Pressing forward is a mark of the mature Christian. In order for Paul to press on in the most effective way, he mentions two things. Forgetting what lies behind. It's a big deal. I think that's both good and bad both. It is. I think it's because we see that he's in the context, he's probably actually talking about good deeds. To your point, it's not bad to do good deeds. It's not bad to be zealous for the law. It's not bad to be zealous for the Bible. Uh, it's not bad to be known as a leader. All of those things he used to think are good. And really, we can say the same stuff. There's stuff that's beneficial, or there's stuff that's good that's not beneficial. Maybe that's the way to say it. Well, I think also is, you know, you think of the old Sunday school teacher that says, I taught Sunday school for 15 years. I don't need to do anything else now. I did good before. Now I can just, mm -hmm. I can coast on. I think part of that is saying you can't think about what good you may have done in the past. You've got to keep moving forward. Yep. That's, that is good. And this message, this point is important for both people because there are those people. There's pe there's a, there are people out there who have lived their life and they've been done pretty good their whole life. They haven't really done anything majorly wrong. They followed scripture most of their life. They never really got in a mess. Maybe they never stole anything or killed anybody or never told any really major lies. They never really coveted. They were never adulterous. They've lived really pretty good life. And then they're going to get to that point and say, yeah, I'm just going to keep on coasting, kind of doing my thing. That's not what Paul says to do. He says, press on, like you're running for the prize. Reaching forward. But then there's other people. There's another subset, or maybe not even a subset, maybe it's a major set, 
of people who have been pretty bad, whether as an unbeliever or even as a believer. Maybe there's been people who did all those things that we just mentioned. Maybe there are believers who engage in that stuff, and they say, I can't do it because of who I am, because of what I did, I'm ashamed. And if I I go do this stuff, if I serve, if I if I use my gift, it's you know maybe you know maybe it's not gonna work out, or you know maybe people are gonna think I'm a hypocrite. Paul says, forget about that. Forget that stuff that lies behind. Reach forward to what lies ahead. That's the appropriate perspective. Who's gonna appear before the judgment seat of Christ? Every single one of us. As sure as you're in this room here now looking me in the eye, you will stand before Jesus and give an account of yourself to him. That's a big deal. Reach forward towards that goal, towards that prize, because he's going to reward faithfulness. So don't let the stuff that's done you behind, that that might have been an accolade that was good, don't let that make you think you're better than you are. Keep doing it. If you're one of those people who think that maybe you've done something bad enough to where you can't be used, that's a lie. All you have to do is look at Scripture. David was a man after God's own heart. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a liar. Moses was a murderer. Abraham was a murderer, or a liar, an adulterer. Yeah, all the, well, he caused adultery. The heroes of the faith are often broken people. Jesus himself came from the lineage of David and Bathsheba. He came from the lineage of Rahab. God can use broken people to do great things. That's what the Bible is about. That may be you. You may be on the other side of that to where you're not broken. You've lived a pretty pretty good life. That's good. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Press on towards the goal. If you've done good, finish strong. You don't see that a lot in the Bible. A lot of times in the Bible you see people that don't finish strong. They may have done something good, but they don't finish well. Finish well if you're that guy. If you've done bad, finish strong. Don't let your past, whether good, bad, effective, or ineffective, be a hindrance for your progress. I put that the past performance is not indicative of future results. Either way, whether good or bad. Just because you've done good doesn't mean you're going to keep doing good. And just because you've done bad doesn't mean you can't do good. But it's up to you. The decision's yours. Let's look at the summary. Everything outside of the context of your relationship with Jesus, from a righteousness standpoint, is worthless. You can't do it. You can't obtain God's righteousness by your good works. If you could, then Jesus died needlessly. And that is what you need to tell any person who says that you need to live it out, who says that you have to prove your faith in order to have eternal life. You should live it out. You should prove your faith. But it's not necessary for eternal life. If it was, then why Jesus come and die? Why are you taken away from the cross? Jesus is the better deal. He is the good news. It's not good news if you can live it out to earn eternal life. It's not. The good news is that because Jesus did what he did, you can live it out. Because Jesus lived the life that you couldn't, because he paid the debt you couldn't pay, because he was a substitute on your behalf, we can live out the resurrected life. He's the better deal. That's better than a works-based message. That's better than a law message. That's better than a circumcision message. Three, righteousness doesn't come from anything that you can do but through faith in Christ. And then here's the big one. Jesus is the object of our faith. What do you believe in for eternal life? Is it the facts? Is it the history? Or is it the person? Is the object of your faith Jesus Christ himself because of what he did, he is our Savior? He's the only one qualified to give us eternal life because he's the only one that did what he did. And by the way, he's the only one that can do it. Five, realize we died to sin. Just like Jesus died to sin and rose again, we are placed in union with him. We're baptizing to him. And just like he died and rose again, we died to sin and rose again. The only difference is we put ourselves back under the bondage 
of sin in the flesh when we decide to sin. But we died out from those who were dead to a new life with Jesus Christ. Next, we can't obtain perfection in this life, but we should strive to live like those who are alive from the dead. That's why he says, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its laws. And stop presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive today from the dead. That's the, that's the resurrection power. Remember, God wants us to grow. Right here on the sanctification. He wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. He wants us to become more and more conformed. If somebody ever asked you, what's God's plan for the believer? What does he want from you? For the believer, you've already been justified by faith. For the believer, he wants you to grow. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to his image. That's what he wants. That's God's will for your life. That's dependent on you in cooperation with him because he gives you the power. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He wants us to be zealous for good deeds. So don't let the good or bad things that you've done in your past be a hindrance to your future. It could be either way. That's the beauty of this message. It speaks to everyone. Because there's all sorts of good people and there's all sorts of bad people. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you've put your faith in Christ, it's up to you now. Press on. Press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call. Alright, here's the application. Realize the value of Jesus Christ and the worthlessness of man's, mankind's attempts at righteousness. You can't get eternal life righteousness. You can't do it on your own. If you could, Jesus died needlessly. Two, be found in Him, having the righteousness of God in you that comes by faith in Jesus. Don't have the righteousness that comes by works. Don't have the righteousness that comes by tradition. Don't have the righteousness that comes by sacraments. None of that stuff matters. It's actually not righteousness. It's worthless. It's garbage. Have the righteousness in you that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then really, this should have been the first one. Realize your identity in Jesus Christ. Know that you're a new creation. You don't have to sin. The bondage of the flesh and the chains of the flesh, is, you're, it's broken. It's up to you. You've got the Holy Spirit. You're made spiritually alive. He's given you the power to do it. You have his word. You're a new creation. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things passed away. The chains of the flesh are gone. New things have come. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You have the actual Holy Spirit in you. You're made spiritually alive. You're able to understand things. So realize your identity in Jesus Christ. Know who you are so that you can go live it out. You died to sin and rose with him to a new life. Don't put yourself back under sin. Attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then finally, strive to live the resurrected life in this body. Do it. You can't be completely perfect, but we should press on towards the goal for the prize. And by the way, what else has he given you to achieve this last one? What else has he given you so that you can strive to live the resurrected life? Gifts. He's given you gifts. What about this weekend? What has he given us? Other believers. Other people. Consider how to stimulate one another on to love and good deeds. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, which is the habit of some, but, all the, but encourage one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. He's given us each other. Hey, men, if you're not signed up for the men's retreat, that's what, exactly what we're going to talk about this weekend. That God has given us each other. We shouldn't just be mere acquaintances. I just shouldn't know who Kevin is, or I know who Dan is, or Spencer. I should know you so that I can appropriately encourage you, so that I can love you appropriately, uh, so that I can pray for you appropriately. He's given us each other so that we can do those things. That's difficult because there's some vulnerability that's inherent in that, but we have to be willing to do it because if we do, it's a little bit easier to live the resurrected life. It is. All right, memorize Philippians 3.14. It's pretty easy. 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What are the appropriate and inappropriate objects to place our confidence or faith in? What's the appropriate thing to put our faith in? Jesus. What's the inappropriate thing? Anything else. <laughs> How does a person obtain God's righteousness? Faith. That's it. Simple. What two things, or sorry, what does it mean to obtain to the resurrection out from the dead? It's a difficult one. This is the difficult, difficult passage. Move from death to life? It, part of the realization that you move from death to life is part of it. Because if you know it, it's, it's living that. It's that Christian lifestyle that you can only live because of the Jesus has been resurrected, and we have too. That's exactly right. We're not the same as what we used to be. Bingo. What would you say, Paige? Sanctification. Yeah, it's the sanctification life. What would you say, Dave? Walking in the Spirit. That's really what he's saying. When he says walk by the Spirit so that you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh in Galatians, that's exactly what he's talking about. The resurrection out from the dead means that you died with Christ. You rose with Him to a new life. So in union with Him, because of what He did, because that's happened, you have the ability, you have the power to walk in the newness of life. You can do it. Okay, what two things does Paul do to effectively press on? That's one. And reaching forward to what lies ahead. It could be good and bad on forgetting. It's only good on forward if you do that. And then here's a true or false. Can we obtain perfect sanctification in this life? We can't. So we shouldn't strive for it, right? (laughs) (laughs) The reaching forward. Sure, what you think he's reaching forward to? That reaching forward may be the reaching forward to <coughs> getting further down on that scale. Exactly but it also may be reaching forward to the time when we're going to get to that last step of glorification at some point. Mm-hmm. I think so. We you know, keep our eyes on where we're going, and he's reaching for where he's going, and not looking at where he's at. Yeah, so I, I think you're, I think all of what you said is right. If I were to say one thing that he's reaching forward to, I'd say it's to perfect conformity into who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. That's the goal. Because there's rewards. There's a prize for that, by the way. That, that those who look more like Christ, you have to be faithful to do it. It doesn't just happen. You have to be disciplined. You have to be faithful. Conscious transformation. It is. It's a, You do. You, you, there's a little bit of effort in that. You become transformed by the Word of God. All right. Let's pray and we'll go. Thanks again for joining us for True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. If you enjoyed this lesson, make sure you subscribe so you can hear the rest of the lessons on True to the Bible podcast. And if you have any questions regarding this lesson or any of the other lessons, make sure you contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you.